Welcome back to the Clerkship Success Series, part of the Neurology Exam Prep Podcast. Uh, in our last episode, we began talking about headaches with Dr. Jeremy Moeller, and specifically, we focused on secondary causes of headaches, the red flags that we should be looking for using the two SNOOP4 mnemonic, uh, as well as some specific etiologies of secondary headaches that students should be aware of. In this episode, we'll pick up right where we left off with a discussion of primary causes of headache. Now, before we delve into the disorders themselves, Dr. Moeller, do you have any tips for medical students on taking a headache history if assuming that we've already ruled out some of the red flags? Go back to fundamentals. You know, whatever approach people have to taking a history uh, in general, and especially a history that relates to pain, uh, there are lots of mnemonics. I can never remember them, but those, those structured histories that are sort of onset, duration, intensity, character, relieving and, and exacerbating factors, et cetera. You know, those things you're gonna do for abdominal pain or whatever is fine. And then what we do is we flesh out some knowledge. So the vast majority of headaches that somebody is going to see a doctor for, and especially a neurologist for, are gonna be migraine. And um, for those who are really interested, there's something called the International Classification of Headache Disorders. It's version three. It's kind of like the DSM for psychiatry. Uh, basically, a bunch of experts put together consensus uh, uh, ideas about what fits a headache, right? Because they're basically descriptive uh, syndromic diagnoses. And I'm just going to read with you from my little headache chart. And we've talked about this before in the uh, in the podcast, the description of migraine from the D, uh, from the uh, from the ICHD three. And you can go to ICHD3.org. Uh, and, and look at the thousands of primary headache syndromes uh, for your reading pleasure. So at least five attacks. So you have to, it has to recur. Headaches lasting four to 72 hours untreated or unsuccessfully treated. So if somebody has a headache that lasts two hours, but they have taken medications for it, that could be migraine. Two of the following four characteristics, unilateral location, pulsating, moderate to severe in intensity or worse with activity. And one, or the, uh, one of the following two, nausea or vomiting or photophobia or fo and photophobia. And then of course, like the DSM-5, uh, not consistent with another syndrome. So of course we have to make sure that it's not secondary to something else. So uh, th th that's the little, that's like the legal component at the end. Well, it could be something else, but, but it's probably otherwise these things. So if you have a headache that lasts four hours, that's moderately severe and worse with activity and you have some photophobia, that's a migraine. You know, so that's a lot of people with sinus headaches. That's a lot of people with tension type headaches, things like that. Most of it's migraine. So um, having a card like our headache card to prompt you to ask these questions or, or just simply going through your structured questions uh, will, will really help. Perfect. So you've actually read my mind because I was going to ask you about features of migraine headaches. And there you go. You have the criteria for diagnosis of migraine headaches. Now, my next question would be, can you give us a simplified explanation of the pathophysiology of migraines? Yeah, uh, and we elaborate this in, in other podcasts and with Dr. Gottschuk, we've elaborated on this and, and I'm not gonna put our audience to sleep. What I will say is this, uh, it's all in the brain. <laughs> so it all originates in the lower brainstem and upper cervical spinal cord. There's a trigeminal vascular system and there's a trigeminal cervical complex. And it seems like that's the fulcrum of the pain component of migraines. And from there, there are projections 
up to the brainstem and that leads to the sensitization and, you know, photophobia, nausea, you know, all those sorts of things. And then there are also, you know, vascular uh, uh, outflows of that, which leads to the release of neuropeptides. And one that's very important would be CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide. And a lot of the new therapies around migraine focus on that, uh, the, the activity of CGRP. So what I would say is that migraine is a brain problem, that the pain, the sort of final common pathway of the pain component of the brain, brain problem tends to be rooted in that lower brainstem upper cervical spinal cord. And to bring that back to the clinical presentation of migraine, that's why I love asking people, okay, where's your headache? And then just watching, you know, looking up from my notes or the computer and watching and saying, where do you get your headache? And, and very often, not always, but very often, I'll see somebody put their hand on their forehead and on the back of their neck. They'll say, sometimes it's here, sometimes it's here. And I look at that. I don't know if people have written about that, but you can see people doing this. And as soon as they do it, I'm like, gosh, this is migraine. And the reason is the, the, the afferent components that lead into that trigeminal cervical complex are predominantly from the V1 distribution of the, uh, of the trigeminal nerve, the uh, ophthalmic distribution of the trigeminal nerve, and that's your forehead, retroorbital region, tempor temporal region, and all the vasculature. And then the upper cervical nerve roots, right? The upper cervical uh, sensory nerve roots. So pain in the neck is a very common feature of migraine. Cool tip. Now this is um, going into what you mentioned before, which are sometimes patients complain of symptoms like seeing shapes before the headache comes or uh, sensing some tingling and numbness. And those are what we refer to as auras. And you actually talked about the three most common types of auras, which are visual auras, and they could look like psychotomas or, or zigzagging patterns, which are called fortification spectra. And they can be sensory in that they tingling and numbness, or they can even be language or cognitive uh, auras. But so the question has always been, how would you know that this patient is complaining of an aura due to a migraine and not something more serious like a TIA or even a focal aware seizure? Yeah, um, I think it really has to do with uh, the nature of auras and what causes them. Um, so auras are caused by something called cortical spreading depression, which is the spreading wave of depressed cortical activity that extends over the surface of cortical tissue at a rate of three millimeters per minute. So three millimeters per minute. And if you think some of you are not as comfortable with the metric system, uh, but uh, uh, there's three, two and a half centimeters in an inch, uh, and there's 10 millimeters in a centimeter. So we have to do a little bit of math, but you know, three millimeters is, is some small fraction of an inch. Uh, so very slow uh, process. And there's this creeping, slow spreading depressed cortical activity, typically that starts in the occipital lobe, typically. And that's why visual symptoms are the most common. And the typical visual symptom is some sort of crescent shape or comma shape in the periphery of vision that slowly expands. And it may have some shimmering components some movement, sometimes some colors, sometimes some geographical shapes. And if you measure the length of the visual cortex, it's gonna gradually expand and then dissipate over about 20 to 30 minutes on average. And that's because that three millimeters to minute is gonna take that time. So that story of looking and thinking, oh, first, oh, I think I have something on my glasses or, or maybe my computer screen is a little blurry and they sort of get the Windex and try to clean that off and it doesn't help. And then all of a sudden it's more and more. 
And so you have that over the 20 minutes, that time course, 20 or 30 minutes. Then you see jumping to sensory symptoms. They say, you know, first I had these visual symptoms for 20 to 30 minutes. You know, it started a little bit. I thought my glasses were dirty. Then it got bigger and bigger. Then I started to notice some tingling on my lip and on the same side. And then I noticed some tingling on my jaw and then it jumped to my hand, you know, uh, and, and that jumping, you'll sometimes see that jumping of sensory symptoms rather than sort of spreading continuously through uh, one side of your, uh, of your body and often positive phenomena. So tingling, not just lack of sensation. And then they say, then I just couldn't get words out. You know, I, I knew what I wanted to say, but it wasn't coming out. I sent a text message to my friend and it made no sense, you know, uh, and, and I was at work and I couldn't read, you know, a lot of migraines happen at work. Uh, not always, but work stressful uh, and, and migraines happen at work. So you'll get that story. I couldn't read my emails, made no sense. And again, the time course of that is going to be that 20, 30 minutes range. You can have auras that persist much longer, but those do require additional investigations. So Charlie, getting back to your question about why is this not a TIA or stroke? Well, uh, TIA tends to have an abrupt onset. And if it's a stroke, it's going to persist much longer than a migraine aura, which might be 30 minutes or you know, an hour or something like that and have that progression. Uh, with a stroke, you're gonna get those symptoms of an onset all simultaneously more or less. Whereas with the migraine, there's that slow spread. And then why is this not a focal aware seizure? Well, focal aware seizures have synaptic spread, right? So the onset is gonna be quick. And if there's spread, that's gonna be quick too, you know, within fractions of a second rather than 20 minutes going from the visual to the sensory and then to the language areas. All right, so now we've decided that our patient is having a migraine attack. So what are some medications or uh, other tools that we have that can use to abort the acute headache? Yeah, so uh, when I talk to patients, um, I say, you know, when we're, we're talking about treating your headaches, we're going to do three things. You, you notice I'm a lumper and I like to chunk things. So the three things are non-pharmacological thinking about triggering or predisposing factors. And those are going to be sleep, regular exercise, et cetera, et cetera. You know, things like that, making sure they don't have sleep apnea, et cetera. Then we talk about acute therapy and then we talk about preventative therapy, which can be pharmacological and non-pharmacological. With the acute therapy, what tends to work is what we call triple therapy. We've talked about it in other podcasts and that's some combination of a triptan medication, typically uh, a, an NSAID, uh, and a dopamine blocking antiemetic medication like metoclopramide. Uh, and the combination of those medications helps when you go back to the physiology of migraines with a lot of the secondary effects, uh, uh, chemical effects, neurochemical effects that happen uh, from that outflow from that trigeminal cervical complex. Um, and, uh, and, and often combining is much more effective than using one agent. Now, what Dr. Gottschalk will tell us is that you start with three, especially if they're really bad headaches, and then you ask people to experiment a little bit. You know, some people might only need two of those things. Some of them might only need one of those things, depending on how bad the headaches are. And with all of these things, because there's this cascade of bio biochemical signals that happens and sensitization and so on, the earlier, the better. So we always encourage people to knock it out early. When somebody's in status migranosis, often they need uh, even more therapies and, and intravenous therapies, and we'll use intravenous, NSAIDs, intravenous antiemetics, which can be very effective. Uh, and, and in more severe cases, we use things like dihydroergotamine or, or, or steroids in some cases, you know, su supported by more or less evidence. And then the third part of your chunking, the third part is chronic migraine management. So when do you start that and what do you use? 
Yeah, so chronic uh, migraine management is when somebody, there's no real number, um, but you may be talking about prophylactic agents when somebody's having multiple disabling headaches a month, when they're not responding fully to the abortive therapy, and when somebody's noticing that migraines are really creeping into their quality of life, you know, so that there really is a dialogue with the patient about that. Um, and uh, we sort of think of our traditional categories of headache preventative medications, and those include the antihypertensives. So things like propranolol uh, and uh, being probably the best of those, the non, uh, non-specific, um, uh, 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 sorry, beta blockers. Uh, we think about the antidepressants, specifically the tricyclic antidepressants tend to be the most effective, and then the anti-seizure medications. And of those, topiramate being probably the one supported by the best evidence. Valproic acid can be very effective, but should be avoided in, in women of childbearing potential. And so that's going to be avoided in, in a large chunk of people with, uh, with chronic migraine. Uh, so those are sort of your three big categories. For people who are not really uh, excited about taking a medication, there are a few herbal or quote unquote natural things that can help. High dose riboflavin has to be 400 milligrams a day, uh, but you, you can get that at some specialized uh, health food stores or online. Um, magnesium. Uh, there have been other things that have been used over the years. Uh, uh, the uh, butterbur, which is the pedicides, uh, uh, was something that was used in the past, but it has to be a specific formulation. Otherwise, there's a risk of hepatotoxicity. So we're, we're, we talk a lot less about butterbur these days than maybe even 10 years ago because of that risk. Uh, and, and any of the herbal or natural substances in the United States are not necessarily regulated in the same way as prescription medications. And so you're less sure what's in them. Um, moving beyond sort of our three traditional ones, we do have the CGRP medications, the calcitonin gene-related peptide medications, which have shown efficacy in both episodic and chronic migraine. And uh, these are monoclonal antibodies, the, the preventative agents are monoclonal antibodies uh, to either the CGRP receptor or the CGRP molecule. And my mnemonic for remembering that it's the receptor is that erenimab, erenimab is a receptor monoclonal antibody. And the other ones, uh, there are three, uh, freminezumab, uh, galcanezumab, and eptinezumab uh, are all um, to the ligand. They're all antibodies to the ligand. Uh, coming down the pike are what are called the GEPANTs, which are small molecules that are just direct blockers of uh, CGRP currently approved for abortive therapy and maybe coming down the line for preventative therapy in the future. Um, and then botulinum toxin, which has an efficacy for chronic migraine, that is migraines that occur more than half the time, uh, but we uh, uh, do not have good evidence to suggest botulinum toxin is helpful for episodic migraine. I, I haven't mentioned, but there are some approved neurostimulation devices. So there's a stimulation device for the forehead, superorbital nerve, uh, and then there's an arm stimulation device, both approved for use in the United States. Um, uh, the superorbital stimulator is approved for both abortive and preventative treatment, and the arm stimulation devices for abortive therapy. And those are uh, not usually covered by people's insurance plans and can be costly, um, but, uh, but can be very effective for some people. Okay, wrapping up our discussion on migraines. So we talked about the features of migraines using the International Classification of Headache Disorders criteria. We talked a bit about the pathophysiology of migraines and there Dr. Moller dropped us a pearl of if a patient describes a migraine as having appearing on the forehead 
and on the uh, on the back of the neck, then it's likely to be a migraine. We then talk about some migraine auras that can appear. And specifically, this relates to the pathophysiology of auras, which is corticospreading depression. So you might get this slow progression of uh, symptoms from visual to sensory to language deficits all over a span of about 20 or 20 to 30 minutes um, for each of these phases. And then we talked about some medications to um, abort the acute headache, but also some of the chronic migraine management. So the three chunks that we want to remember for students that Dr. Moller mentioned is first the non-pharmacological side of things, which are you know sleep hygiene and avoiding triggers. And then there is the acute uh, portion of the headache, which we talked about uh, the triple therapy, um, including uh, tripton and NSAID and a D2 blocker uh, like metoclopramide. Um, and um, you know, more for severe cases, we can use infusions, uh, including dihydroergotamine. And the third chunk being the chronic migraine management, uh, which we talked about uh, right before this, which are the hypertensives, the antidepressants, and anti-seizure meds, and all the other new medications on the market. So Dr. Moeller, let's now talk about another major class of primary headache disorders, uh, trigeminal autonomic cephalalgias, which again, should not be confused with trigeminal neuralgia, which we discussed earlier. So this class includes cluster headaches, which is what most medical students will have heard about. But can you tell us about some of the features of this class of headaches? Yeah, and, and, and I will point people to an uh, uh, instant classic episode from about four months ago on trigeminal autonomic just for those who are interested in more detail. So we, we won't dive as deep as that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the points uh, I'm going to give uh, uh, Sonia, you and, and Charlie full credit. You've put some points about the things that differentiate trigeminal autonomic just and, and, and I'm happy uh, with those and they'll be in the show notes. So if you have a side locked severe headache with autonomic symptoms, and that is things like tearing, droopy eyelid, red eye, you know, red ear, even those sorts of things, then you might be thinking about a trigeminal autonomic cephalalgia. And the reason you care is the treatments are different. The most common of these is cluster. Uh, they, they, it's so-called cluster because people will have clusters of days or weeks of headaches followed by periods with relatively infrequent headaches. And they can often have multiple headaches per day lasting minutes to hours. Um, the, one of the big differences between cluster and migraine is that people feel activated. So they feel like they want to get up and pace around or in severe cases feel like they need to scream. Whereas with migraines, most people, if you ask them what they want to do, they want to go to bed uh, and have the lights off and, and the blinds pulled down and really quiet. Uh, and for cluster headache, the treatments uh, acutely high flow oxygen uh, is, is one of the biggest treatments. Triptans can help. And then chronically, things like calcium channel blockers and lithium and other agents can be helpful for cluster and don't tend to be particularly helpful for migraine. There's a couple of other ones, uh, paroxysmal hemicrania and hemicrania continua. Uh, Paroxysmal hemicrania, as the name implies, is very short, very frequent headaches. Hemicrania continua is a continuous headache that's side-locked, both with autonomic features. And the hemicrania, that word is helpful because that tells you that they are potentially endomethacin responsive. So paroxysmal hemicrania and hemicrania continue are responsive to endomethacin. And then we have a final category, which are the short, shortest of the headaches, often lasting only seconds. And those include sunked 
and I spent my entire residency remembering what sunct stood for, but it's short-lasting unilateral neuralgiform, remember our friend neuralgiform, headache with conjunctival injection and tearing. So that's a neuralgiform headache, but in the V1 distribution. So a lot of times if you referred somebody with a question of trigeminal neuralgia and it's in the, in the forehead, uh, ask about autonomic symptoms and maybe they have sunked. And then there's SUNA, which is short-lasting unilateral neuralgiform headache with autonomic features. So a little less specific. And both of those headache types can respond to anti-seizure medications. Um, so uh, again, the reason we care is that they may have different treatments. These are very severe headaches. And as you've put in your note, uh, it's important to get the right treatments because uh, people can consider uh, a suicide uh, with these headaches. So there are higher rates than the general population. So this is not just a headache. These are very severe problems that need to be treated uh, very uh, in a focused fashion and, and with close follow-up. So just to recap, again, these uh, this class of headaches really presents with a sidelocked, incredibly severe headache, uh, and the autonomic symptoms can really help point you in this direction, uh, those being things like tearing, rhinorrhea, conjunctival injection, ptosis. Uh, cluster headache is probably the most common, and it temporally occurs literally in clusters, and acute treatment includes high-flow oxygen and triptans, and chronically, uh, use of calcium channel blockers can be helpful as well. Uh, and students should just be aware that there are other types of uh, headaches that fall into this category as well. These include paroxysmal hemicrania, SUNA, SUNCT, uh, and those are just important to be mindful of because they do have different treatment options, anti-seizure medications being the one that you mentioned. Now, the last category of primary headaches that we'll discuss are tension-type headaches. So what characterizes these headaches? Yeah, I, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because there's a whole debate about whether this is a separate entity or just really mild version of migraine. Um, but regardless, tension type headaches, most people with tension type headaches don't end up seeing the doctor uh, because they tend to be mild to moderate, uh, sometimes infrequent, although they can be chronic, uh, and, and they don't have the typical migraine features. So they don't meet the criteria for the migraines, uh, nausea or throbbing or sensitivity to lights, et cetera, those sorts of things. Um, classically, there's this sort of band-like sensation uh, around the head. Um, again, physiologically, I, I, this is outside of my realm of sort of deep expertise, but I've been convinced by others that physiologically, they must have a similar, you know, final common pathway to migraine and they're just milder. Mm -hmm. So may maybe it just turns out as humans, we could all potentially have headaches. Uh, and it's just a, a, a question of threshold. Very interesting point. Yeah. So again, these are just, these are much more milder types of headaches than what we've previously discussed. Uh, oftentimes these patients don't even present to the, the clinic or to a provider uh, uh, for these, for these headaches. Perfect. And last question for you, Dr. Moller is, would you order imaging on a patient complaining of headache? It depends is the answer. Uh, I think generally going back to your mnemonics, your uh, two SNOOP four is reasonable, um, but it's really going to depend on your history, physical, your clinical suspicion, and some conversation. Now, one might ask, why not just order a brain MRI on everyone, you know, as they roll into the hospital, you know, why don't we just invest in this as a screening measure? And well, there's some downsides, right? There, there are psychological and potentially physical 
negative implications from the discovery of incidental abnormalities. I mean, we know this. Um, uh, it's probably best described or, or very well described in screening for intracranial aneurysms, right? Uh, a certain portion of the population has unruptured aneurysms and knowing about that can lead to interventions which can increase harm or uh, psychological distress, uh, which can lower quality of life. And this has been studied. So similarly, one of the reasons we don't, you know, if a patient's sitting there and like, why not just do it? I say, well, you know, there are downsides and you need to know that it's really hard to predict what the downsides of an incidental unrelated find discovery are. Um, so if we're going to order imaging, ideally, none of us is perfect, but ideally it's less of a fishing expedition and more of a thought to order it because you have a good reason, because you're wondering about one of these secondary problems. Great. And so that concludes our episode on headache disorders. We talked about the general framework, which is to determine whether this is a secondary headache disorder or whether this is a primary headache disorder, the most common being migraines of the latter category. So for the secondary disorders, we talked about subarachnoid hemorrhage, temporal arveritis, uh, idiopathic intracranial hypotension, and spontaneous intracranial hypotension, press, and intracranial tumors, and also uh, trigeminal neurologists. And within the primary headache disorders, we focus a lot about on migraines, its uh, features and its treatment, but we also talked a bit about trigeminal autonomic cephalogias, uh, specifically on cluster headaches, but also some of, touch on some of the other ones. And then we touched briefly on tension type headaches and we discussed imaging for patients with a headache. And the answer for that is it depends. So thank you, Dr. Muller, for uh, being with us today. And I'm sure our listeners have learned a lot. It was fun. Thanks so much.